podcast. You're having tea with Alice. I'm in Edinburgh Fringe at the moment and it's insane and amazing. If you want to know what's happening with that, read my blog. Patreon.com slash Alice Fraser is where it is. Also, that's where you can give me money if you want to or not. Uh, It's not compulsory, but it is strongly suggested. Uh, My guest this week is Alana Zivanovich who is, I met doing my TEDx talk, so a couple of years ago now, uh, and you have had a really interesting last year or so, right? Yes, it's been very interesting. <laughs> That's a good word to you. So first tell, tell uh, the TCAST listeners who you are and what you do. Okay, TCAST, uh, I am a singer, originally from New Zealand, Uh, At the moment I'm doing more jazz than anything else but my background's also classical and I love a bit of pop and folk as well. Who doesn't love (laughs) pop and folk? Folk otherwise known as old pop. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, so um, yeah, the last 12 months have been interesting. Uh, I started off with a bit of a, a funny gig in the middle of China which... Didn't go quite as planned, but so we're in the middle of China, just in case someone has a map of China in front of them. <laughs> okay, I'm, I was in a place called Changsha. All right. Yes, it's about three hours or so north of uh, Shenzhen, so it's pretty central China. Yeah, yeah, it's a huge city. There's like seven million, eight million people in the province, um, and it's a massive factory city. There's not so when you say else. factory city, you mean it's just factories, wall-to-wall factories? Pretty much, pretty much. Um, the Westerners I met while I was there were all involved in factory work. So maybe for Apple or car manufacturing, anything that sort of you can outsource has been done in, in Changsha. So when they say made in China, I think they really mean <laughs> made there. <laughs> made there. Yeah. And what kind of culture gets built up around a place like that? Really not a lot. Seriously, um, the place I was singing in was probably where most of the culture was at, to put it into perspective. So, and where were you? Where were you singing in? I was at an intercontinental in the city, a hotel. Oh, on wow. the top. Floor. So you were like the jazz singer at a hotel. I was, but funnily enough, did you wear enough, a slinky red dress? No, not quite. And this is the interesting part of the story: is I was a jazz singer in a club, uh, not a lounge bar. So. It was really not my thing. Um, Uh Yeah, it was more of a a gig for those that want to rock out and have a big Friday, Saturday night with a big band or, you know, someone with more of a a full-on Christina Aguilera belting kind of voice, which is not my thing. So... So, but you you were scheduled to be there for four months, if I remember correctly. Yes. And then... Four months got whittled down to about six weeks with performance of about three. So it was a very, very short-lived gig. And did you kick the table over and leave or did they kick the table over? It was interesting. Uh, I didn't actually kick a table, (laughs) but (laughs) I probably would have if they hadn't come to me first and actually said, you're not quite what we're looking for. Uh, Unfortunately, it wasn't as diplomatic (laughs) as that. (laughs) Yeah, that's uh, culturally speaking... Uh, Chinese people are not super diplomatic. No. Not in the or the idea of diplomacy is a different idea than the idea that we have 
in Western society. Very different. Like things that are offensive are different from the things that we find offensive. Mm-hmm. Like I, I remember going um, into the tea shop, Taka Tea, where I've recorded podcasts before and Helen, who is lovely and delightful and has sort of vaguely adopted me as her as an she's sort of an auntie in the in the style that like my Burmese aunties are they just claim themselves as an auntie and then they boss you around uh but I I walked in and she's like your skin is terrible you need to drink more water and I was like oh okay that's exactly what it's like yeah Uh, so what what happened with you well um let's just say that I'm too short and that I have too much too short for China (laughs) too too (laughs) short for China um, that I'm I'm not sexy enough, and that I have too much fat. On too, my, that you have my too body. much fat. I, I'm I'm not skinny enough. That is uh, a bullshit lie. <laughs> that is not true, uh, uh, listener. You're not in the room with me at the moment, but uh, she's definitely very sexy. And oh, thanks, Ellis. <laughs> not not. I'm not hitting on you. This is just an objective. Thank uh, you. Even though you are technically sleeping in my bed tonight, <laughs> I will not be also sleeping true. in that bed. Um, so, and I washed the sheets for you, so it's not even a I little know. bit sus. I appreciate um, that. So, what did that? How did that make you feel? Did you take it personally, or no? Could, did you just not? I really didn't. Honestly, it was pretty comical um, to be smack bang in the middle of China and have this group of people that purposely employed you, had seen all your pictures, knew what you sounded like, uh, turn around and say, actually, you're not right for this gig because of a few reasons that were totally Yeah, we, we, we knew this going in. <laughs> yeah, you knew. <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting. So, yeah. That's good confidence I don't know if I'd be able to take that criticism without feeling like I'm not great at taking criticism no no I don't like it oh see I don't mind it I actually prefer well particularly about things that you can't really help I know but I guess it comes back to mindset for me I sort of couldn't take it personal because I realized that this was a culture that had kind of certain ideals that had been you know they'd shaped certain ideals that weren't what I was used to and so although I couldn't change certain aspects I was fine with that because to me I'm totally fine how I am if that makes sense that's yeah I guess (laughs) if you're in the middle of China and uh their idea of westerners I imagine for the most part there weren't many tourists no not, not exactly. In yeah. Um, <laughs> their idea of Westerners would have been shaped by Hollywood or whatever, whatever of kind of media. I mean, it's not like they have Facebook, so it's not as though you're looking at normal people. Exactly. I mean, the reference that I was given was uh, Jemima. Is that her name from the Roger Rabbit? I think uh, Jemima or the the woman the really Jessica tall one, Rabbit. Jessica Rabbit that's it the really tall woman that's very voluptuous and sexy red hair and I don't know I was none of those things that's I mean you could have done a wig I could have done a wig uh, <laughs> if you if you were really committed uh, man stilts I mean not only is she not a realistic like she's not a Hollywood lady she's a an actual cartoon exactly. lady that's not that's, that's not how 
people look, no. even unrealistically beautiful people. Yeah. So I, I don't know that you, yeah, I, I imagine that would be hard to take, uh, to take personally. Uh, so where do you think you got your confidence then that it could not be shaken? I mean, I am facing this at the moment in that I wrote an article last night you know, two o'clock in the morning. Oh God, I have to write my SBS article for Friday. Uh, what do I write it about? I sent a few pictures to my editor. He didn't get back to me. I sent them on Tuesday. He didn't get back to me. And then he got back to me and said, oh, do the one about the atheists and the census. Look on SBS comedy if you want to read it. By the way, it's not particularly well written. Uh, but it, the, the the breakdown of it goes, atheists wanted are doing a um, campaign to, quote, tick the truth, which is to say if you were born Christian but aren't really Christian anymore, you should tick no religion on the census so that we have a better idea of demographics, um, of the demographics of our country. Uh, And then there was a backlash from Islamophobes who want to persuade people not to do that to tick christian even if you're not christian so that it seems like the christians outweigh the muslims at least on paper even if not in reality and i don't think that that's a particularly reasonable approach the fear that muslims will take over being statistically unlikely given that at the moment on the census there's 2.4 percent of australia who identify as muslim so I mean, and, and, and at least 27% who identify as, as Christian, Christian. And then I think another 20-something percent who identify as atheist. And then other Judaism, other religions are still on top. I think Islam is about seventh down the list. Mm-hmm. So the fear that some people ceasing to lie about their affiliation will somehow end up with a mosque in every suburb, which is kind of the rhetoric, is a silly one. Like I, I under I understand Islamophobia. I genuinely I genuinely understand where people are coming from with it. I understand the fear. It's a culturally often the countries which are predominantly Muslim are not super compatible with Western liberal values. Like the 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 way that you know, human rights are in a lot of Muslim countries is not the way that human rights are in Western countries. And you can say that that's a problem of development or you can say it's a problem of religion and the answer is you don't actually know until you have enough Muslims in a Western country to see how those those uh, values mm-hmm. play out. Whether it's just a matter of, you know, you're a developing country, you haven't got round to human rights yet or that you have built into this religion some sort of value system that's incompatible with Western morals. We don't know that for sure, yeah. actually. Yeah because arguably built into Christianity are, are value systems that are incompas- incompatible with Western morals as they stand today. Like, I'm pretty sure we're not stoning adulterers to death anymore. Mm-mm. I'm pretty sure that we don't have slaves anymore. I'm pretty sure that we eat shellfish all the fucking time. <laughs> like, so then, you know, is the core of the religion compatible or is it is it a religion that is really black letter law that you can't be Muslim without being textual in a way that people claim to be Christian who haven't even read the Bible, uh, all of these things, and that you can't, you know, or Buddhism where you can't really claim to be a Buddhist unless you're practicing because there's no conversion into or out of. It's not a matter of faith or identity, really. It's a matter of 
practical application and likewise with Judaism you can claim to be Jewish even if you explicitly don't believe in God you know you've got rabbis who say of course I don't believe in God I'm a rabbi (laughs) there's all different kinds of religions and there's different ways that the texts play out in those religions and I think within each religion you have you know different sects and different ways of approaching the texts and different things that you draw from the texts and we don't know yet how that's going to play out with Muslim immigration to Australia, but also don't panic. There's not that many. Like it's a relatively slow integration and we managed it with every other wave of immigration beforehand. That's true. And I mean, even if the number's increasing, I mean, this is a people here that when you look at the when you break it down, a lot of them are just beautiful. They've got so many lovely Muslim friends um, and it's a shame really that there's a really small minority that are ruining it for all these wonderful people, you know? It's a shame that we're not embracing, I guess, the majority, which are really good people with strong moral values. See, I would argue that the majority of people in the world are a little bit shit, (laughs) but... (laughs) But there are some lovely people out there and <laughs> uh, regardless of their religion. The, the point being I wrote this article, sorry, I got sidetracked uh, into my own brain and I'm talking too much but I'm tired so <laughs> uh, The point being that I wrote this article and uh, people have come out of the woodwork in a way that, you know, I didn't anticipate at 2 o'clock in the morning when I was like, oh, better get this out before I go to sleep because... Uh, it's due normally on Friday at midday, but because of the time difference, normally I wake up on Friday and write my article and I have yeah. it in by the deadline by midday. But then I'm like, oh no, it's Thursday night slash mm-hmm. past midnight on a Thursday night. Got to get this in and done and all of that. And maybe that's not the most professional attitude to forget <laughs> uh, when all of that's happening. But um, it also means that it's a good reminder for me that like this is going public like there are a lot of people who who read these articles although not all of the people commenting on the article apparently read it read it (laughs) or I don't know what if I'm more frightened by the fact that they they hadn't read it or if they did read it and are still commenting with the comments that they are are commenting Mm -hmm. with like if you haven't read the article and do a comment then you're just a reactionary idiot and you're just making yourself feel good and fine whatever but if you have read the article and you're completely incapable of understanding what I was saying which is a relatively nuanced perspective I think Mm -hmm. but I would think that um (laughs) like either I'm a really bad communicator or there are some real idiots like who are just reading words and then understanding the opposite of the words that they're reading Mm -hmm. like how do how do we like that's more worrying to me I think because it means that I can't do what I think is the most important thing in the world. I know what you're saying. It's almost like social media in itself has opened up this whole world. Well, it has literally for anyone and everyone to sort of put themselves out there in the public sphere. And you have to pick and choose, I guess, what you will take on board and what you won't. You know, there's a lot of rot (laughs) out there at the moment, especially so... Yeah, I, I I vacillate between the idea that I should read feedback, that I should take criticism, 
that I should look in like I don't really read my reviews unless they're four stars or above Mm -hmm. I I will ask other people I'll ask my brother to read them and tell me if there's any valid points in there yeah and he's quite critical as a person if you've heard my podcast with Henry you know he's got quite an analytical mind and he's quite critical so uh I can trust him to tell me if they do have a point yeah but I won't read them and likewise I'm not sure I'm not sure if I should be reading like reviews are the most kind of articulate form of trolling that there is uh-huh. reviews at replies twitter stuff comments on my articles I tend not to read those no no or, no, or I sk- sort of skim over them with that kind of slightly disassociated brain and then block people if they're saying mean things um I, I, part of me thinks I should just harden up by exposure. I should just continue to expose myself to these kind of inputs until they are meaningless. I think it's it's great to expose yourself as long as you set boundaries. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? So I like what you said about disassociating because it's important to know how you're being received but also to keep in mind that a lot of the time coming back to your article and some of the comments that have been made – people aren't necessarily thinking through what they're they're saying. So when you take on board any criticism, um, it really should be constructive, you know, and that's where I think it's great that you rely on your brother and those sorts of sources who you know are actually out there to be real brutal with you and make your work the best that it can be but not sort of just, you know, throwing awful comments at you for no good reason yeah I feel like maybe it's the thing of I'm okay uh, maybe I misrepresented what I said before or it's it's only it's an incomplete statement I don't like taking criticism from people who I don't know and I don't know why Mm -hmm. so if I think that you have my best interests at heart I will listen to what you have to say if I think you're pursuing your own agenda then I, why would I engage with this? Yeah, I agree with you on that. Like I, I had a very quick scroll through the comments when I was just suddenly on my Facebook page, my own sort of Facebook page, scrolling down and these people who I don't know and were appearing in the comments and that was when I realised that this article had had, had somewhat more <laughs> reach than I had anticipated. <laughs> and of course I should have anticipated. I put atheists and Islamophobes in the same bloody title. Well, there you like, go. <laughs> it, was, it was clickbait from the get-go and I, I didn't think that through obviously my editor did because he picked it out of the six options that I presented to him including yeah. things like <laughs> you know the craziest health claims made by water <laughs> obviously that one's gonna be see I, you know I, I thought that would be a fun interesting light-hearted little article and he went with the Islamophobia slash atheism one uh. but when I saw that there were this many comments I was like whoa this is a lot of comments I don't know this person I don't know this person I didn't know this person and about six comments in someone was already calling me uh, someone with no national pride, like a, basically a, a traitor. What a ridiculous statement. Yeah, and I I, I don't know. Like, you know, what do you do with that? What is national pride anyway? Like, I mean, come on. You, you're just creating dialogue, you know what I mean? This, this sort of stuff needs to be talked about. It's a very real topic. Um, and there's no, I guess, right or wrong but it's about being involved and actually, you know, talking through the options because clearly there's a lot of 
idiots out there making um, very strange claims to different things. And yeah, yeah. It, was, it was just amazing to me how quickly that happened from me just posting this article when I, you know, when it came up in my Twitter feed that SBS had put out the article and I retweeted it and put it on my own Facebook page and then all of a sudden, you know. Well, now you know it works. So next time, I guess you'll be putting those two words yeah, in there. I'm, I'm going to become. I'm, gonna, I'm the new Richard Dawkins, <laughs> guys. Uh, wait for me to go off the rails. Uh, have you been wrestling with any ideas recently? Have you had any like struggles with your with your own brain? Um, I guess there's always struggles with the brain. There's nothing really that comes to light in terms of topics happening in the world that I can think of that my brain's really like. Ah, about um but yeah I mean that's a very interesting question I'm not quite sure how to answer you on it it's all right you don't have to you don't have to answer me uh, it's I'm just always interested in I'm always interested in things that people aren't quite decided on yet or things that they are decided on but maybe aren't sure about their own reasons or things that they're decided on that other people don't believe and where they got that decision from in the face of other people. Because I think a lot of people sort of believe things by default. Yes. Like they haven't necessarily thought through the argument. They just look at other people who are like them. Yeah. Like your Netflix recommendation queue. Yeah. Which has been <laughs> obsessing me and I've been writing jokes about recently. Uh, but you look at the other people who are like you and the things that they like and the things that they believe and you sort of assume that you would believe the same thing and then you do preliminary research by looking at the things that they have put out there. Yeah which inevitably back up their points and are reasonable and, you know, rational. And, and I just, I mistrust, ra- I mistrust rationality a little bit, even though I think it's sort of the best tool we have because I think it misses something. I know what you're saying. And an example that comes to mind when I think about that sort of thing is years back I went on a trip to Israel um, with a bunch of, of friends and people I'd never met and... Um, a lot of the comments that I got before even going on this trip were, why are you going? Like, Israel is a really dangerous place. Why would you go and and put yourself there? And I think that's exactly it, is a lot of the people that were making these comments were people that had not looked outside of the, you know, general news columns that are always kind of hacking the same old stories about you know, places like Israel being dangerous when in reality it's very much not an overall dangerous place. I mean, obviously there's hot Unless spots. Unless you're Palestinian. And, and, well, <laughs> yeah, it depends where you are. And, and I mean, obviously, I think especially in this day and age, though, a lot of places are dangerous, mm. you know. Um, it's not just these middle eastern countries or third world places anymore it's in our own backyards you know in continental europe and down in australasia and yeah so i think flighting things like that can be a bit hairy when you're listening to the common majority and it's not really based on anything apart from like hearsay and yeah yeah and again unless you're looking at the statistics and getting you know realistic kind of input it can feel like because there is there are more mosques then there's sort of a takeover of some kind and you need to fight this encroaching tide and then you look at the statistics it's 2.4 percent that's not many no 
you know. Exactly. It's not an encroaching tide or if it is, it's moving very slowly and we have time to adjust to it. Yeah. And then equally, sometimes statistics are misleading. Like sometimes data lies or only tells you one thing most studies are flawed in some way and mm-hmm. i mean that's what i say when i mean i mistrust rationality yeah in that i feel like there's a distinction to be made between rationality and reasoning yeah like where you go well it's part of gauging how reliable the data is being aware of your own biases like not just jumping on the maths that makes sense to you because you're working backwards from something that you've already essentially decided you uh-huh. believe. Yeah. Like you kind of want to examine all of the bits that make up that decision yeah. and then look at the maths and then decide. And then make a decision based off that. When was the last time you heard someone change their mind mid-argument? <sighs> I don't know. Right? You don't. <laughs> so when what's the point of argument? Like I don't we've sort of come away from this thing where people could win a debate there's sort of the debate is for the audience maybe the undecideds in the audience but it isn't actually most debates are for the people in the audience who already know what they think Mm -hmm. and that's something that I've noticed doing more and more kind of comedy debates and obviously comedy debates are a particular thing and people are there to be entertained but also they're for the most part massively rigged they're not they're not things that people are undecided on. The one that I did against Julian Assange back in at Splendour in the Grass was, uh, can we trust the media? Right? Yeah. <laughs> at a music festival, you know, mm. like in Byron Bay, like what are you doing? And yeah. Julian Assange was arguing we can't trust the media and I was arguing we can trust can the trust. media. Like what – that is not a debate. That no. is not – an issue on which people have no opinion and can be, you know, enlightened, nor is it an opinion on which, nor is it an issue on which people's opinions can be changed. Yeah. So again, I mean, obviously the primary purpose of that was entertainment, but again, why have a debate? Why not just have a stand-up show on a topic? Yeah, more comedy, I say. (laughs) Yeah, more comedy, that's a, you know... I, I don't know. That's I'm talking too much again. <laughs> no, you have some really interesting ideas. Well, thank you. It's my uh, USP. <laughs> How do you find being a freelance performer? Uh, up and down. Up and down, I think, like most freelancers. Uh, What's your attitude? Do you think you're more kind of art driven or you have more of a kind of a business development approach definitely more art driven um i used to think i came from a business standpoint but now i realize life's too short sing what you enjoy don't just sing for the masses or create for the masses like find your own little niche and really do your thing if that makes sense. I mean, that's great. The, the, the magic of the modern world is that every, uh, every niche now, every small niche is now a worldwide small niche. That's true. So something that would have had, you know, 700 people in Australia now has 20,000 people across the world yeah. 
who love it more than anything else in the world. Which is the beauty of things like the internet too. When you I look mean, it back also at it. does mean you get some weird <laughs> internet <laughs> subcultures. Yeah. Like. <laughs> yeah. But I also am sort of delighted by them, even the awful ones. Not the awful, awful ones. It's just the awful ones. But the ones. ones that are just like, you know, what was one I found out about the other day? Uh, people who fantasize about being eaten by giant ladies. What? That's actually a That's thing? That's a thing, right? And so these people, who I imagine felt very strange and isolated, have now got hundreds, maybe thousands. I don't, I haven't looked into it. I don't, it's not, I think it's I would find it a little bit upsetting. <laughs> but uh, I don't know how many people there are if someone wants to look that up. You, you go with God um, <laughs> or not God, depending on your belief the system. Lady. The point being, the big lady. But like, not 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 like a fat lady, like a giant lady, like oh, a, like, like a, a, a ten, like ten story lady. Wow. Okay. So completely logistically unfeasible. And so then part of me goes, so you're either all of these people around the world, just being the one person in the village or the one person in the city who dreamt about giant ladies eating them has suddenly found this community of other people who dream about giant ladies who eating them and then they can make videos and <laughs> special effects and, and tell, tell each other stories. That and, is so weird. And have names and outfits and slang that they use for themselves. Or maybe there was just one person and then he was on the internet writing about it and then someone else was like, no, you're right. <laughs> like either way, I love it. Otherwise, yeah. I just think it's such a beautiful human thing, right? I think it's great that they can come together, that there's a place for them yeah. to, to do their thing. It's, yeah. I mean, Even if it's weird, it, it's cool, you know? Especially if it's weird, it's <laughs> yeah. cool. Like I just, I, it, it makes me really happy uh, because I also think that that means less bullying, Yes. More bullying and then less bullying insofar as people will be weirder. Yeah. And so they'll stand out more at their school. But they'll also have that sense of, fuck you, I belong somewhere. It'll desensitise the whole sort of Yeah, it'll take the sting out of it. You don't have the feeling that high school is the universe anymore, which you used to have before this. You used to feel like high school was the universe and if the people at high school rejected you, you'd be cast out into the blackness of eternal yeah. space yeah whereas now oh it's dear. just like well i'm gonna go to go to my internet friends and talk about how shit you all are <laughs> <laughs> like, that's great yeah no it's good like i just i love it uh do do tweet me at alliterative if you are somebody who likes being eaten by giant ladies please don't um just tell me if you have <laughs> if, if you've met a weird subculture actually and and what it is because I'm, I'm fascinated yeah. by that it's interesting Mm, I never knew that. I've learned something new today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I learned it the other day and I'm passing it on like a maniac. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, maybe maybe there's someone who hadn't found that yet and who's just listening now and is just gone, oh, yeah, <laughs> giant ladies. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, oh, I'm not sure if I can talk about this. This? No, I can't. I can't. I'll ask permission before I talk about it. Listen in next week for a hilarious story of a thing that happened to somebody who wasn't me and I want to share it. <laughs> um, but I'm not sure if, if I have permission. So uh, I didn't need to say Wait any of see. that bit Wait and see. out loud. <laughs> so you're living in London now. You're not in China anymore. No. But I met you in Sydney. Yes, we met in 2014, wasn't it? Yeah, it feels like ages ago. <laughs> it is ages ago. That was fun. That was a great experience. 
I was pretty out of it. It was about two weeks before my mum died, so yeah. I was just. I w- it was very surreal. I have the to whole say, thing was very surreal. I totally admire you and what you managed to do there. That was just I could never have done that. Well, it's that thing I think because mum was sick for a very long time, up mm. and down, and then sort of was dying for a while. Yeah. You can't exactly stop your life, even though bits of your brain sort of shut down because, mm. <laughs> you you know, you're not able to be as sad as... Well, you're, the sadness that you have has to sublimate itself to you being functional. Yeah. So you, you're weird and you're, the way you react to the world is weird and the way you feel is really weird, but you're still able to do like show up at a place and say words into a microphone because that's your job yeah but it was that thing of like after after my mum died my dad's work offered him to take six to nine months off wow and he was like no 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 why would because I mean looking after mum was like a second job in itself so why would you go from being busy all the time and 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 having these kind of incredibly stressful life to six months of just staring into the Nothing. abyss. Yeah, I can't think of anything worse, to be honest. Like, I just, I mean, I imagine for some people it would be the right thing to do. And I imagine, like, it was very kind of them to offer that. Yeah, that was a very nice of them. It was really, like, there's a university, very lovely, UTS. But, yeah, that, you can't. You can't make grief your primary purpose No, in, you, a, in a way. You have to find something else to not clutch onto but something that drives you. And I lost my grandmother uh, around this time last year and she was the closest person to me. I grew up in her house for the first 18 years of my life. And for me, I think it was finding something which was the music that kind of just drove me on because I knew that by pursuing it I was also honoring her memory if that makes sense yeah and I think you know thinking back on on your situation and and ability to get up and do what you did at that time um, when you were going through all of this with your mum you know it it reminds me of the actual evening when my grandmother did pass away and I don't know where it came from but I had this overwhelming sense or this urge to kind of hold the family together through song and I was just able to kind of my grandmother was in a coma and I was just singing the whole the whole evening and just bringing the family together and we had lots of songs that she loved and I don't know it was strange looking back because I I even sang at her funeral and I think how did I manage to do that yeah but I don't know it was something that kind of overtook the what was the reality of the whole situation if that makes sense yeah some sort of I mean I read my mum's poetry at her funeral wow and I don't know how I did that and someone sent me footage of it. I haven't watched it. I don't think I can. No. At least not for 10 years maybe. But it's that thing. I don't know whether it's one or all of the following. Like either 
um, channeling your grief into something yeah. or using, ta- you know, turning your eyes away from your grief or the fact that like death makes you feel so helpless that you, 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 there's nothing you can actually do. So doing something feels, <laughs> feels like you're doing something, yeah. even if it's not about the thing that you're actually trying to fix. In the same way as um, science recently has shown that if you take Panadol, it helps you uh, with a broken heart. It helps you feel less sad. because the, Because, you know, when you're... When Placebo you, effect. No. Uh-huh. Um, it, uh, it deals with the nerves or the neurons or the whatever in your brain, the part of your brain yeah. that feels pain that part is co-opted by your emotional system. Wow. So when you feel emotional pain, your brain registers it as physical Physical. pain, at least partly. And so when you deal with the physical pain circuits of your brain in Mm -hmm. a chemical way, Mm -hmm. it's that kind of thing where if you smile, you feel happier. You're, you're not great at attributing cause and effect. And so if you stop feeling the physical part of the pain as much because yeah. of the medicine that you've taken, you think you're less sad or you feel less sad or you feel you might know that you, objectively that you're as sad but you don't have that horrible gaping ache in you mm-hmm. which is the physical manifestation of the emotional Wow, that's fascinating. Thing. So like I feel like to kind of get back to the original point, you're singing... Your comedy. My comedy, <laughs> the, write, the writing of that of the show that I was writing at that time as mm-hmm. well and having something to do every night. Yeah. And having something that, that, that I could do that was like in, in the literal sense of the word about the grief. Mm-hmm. I can do something about it but you can't do anything about it but you can do something sort of around, around it, it and in the region of it and about it in that way and then it feels... You know, you're kind of tricking yourself into feeling less helpless. Yeah. Even though you know you're as helpless as you are. Yeah. And I think, too, it it helps others. You know, what you've done there is something that I'm sure other people are able to relate to and will take a lot of strength from. And I think it's amazing to be able to contribute like that at such a time. I'm going to have to cut this out of the podcast. No, I'm serious. I'm serious. You know, it it is. And... uh, yeah, I don't know. Grief's a, a funny thing. Sometimes, I don't know, I question how I've dealt with with that with my grandmother. Because sometimes, I don't know about you, but I just feel numb. Like, I actually don't feel anything. Yeah. And it's strange, and I, and I actively think to myself, is that normal? Like, shouldn't I be going crazy right about now? Why am I absolutely just numb well that's one of the i think that is a absolutely normal 100 percent normal because you can't feel as sad as you feel it's sort of there's a it threshold would be, there and it's like you can't <laughs> well you've got a self-protection mechanism yeah it would be crippling to feel as sad as you should feel in the face of death particularly if you don't believe in an afterlife it's not just that they've died it's that they will be dead forever like you can't you can't wrap your brain around that so your brain sort of stops trying but then also it's interesting because it spurts out in other ways. You might not feel grief 
but you'll feel just a spurt of rage when something is slightly inconvenient Mm -hmm. or you'll hear a song and it'll just wreck you. Yeah. Or uh, Justin Hamilton took me to see Interstellar uh, very soon after my mum died and there's a scene in that where the father says something about the mother who apparently died when the female character, the daughter, was young. He says something about what the mother wanted or what she thought when when she was leaving and I just, you know, it's a stupid movie. Like why was that the thing that brought me to tears rather than my own situation? Like, But then it's, it is that thing where you're, you're dealing with it very, just by clipping the edges of it because yeah. to deal with the centre of that thing would be too much too much so you just you're just scraping around the edges of it yeah. and and picking off tiny pieces and chewing over those tiny pieces in manageable yeah. chunks and that's it. it it's manageable whereas i think for you that moment perhaps in that movie was unexpected and so it caught you off guard yeah and i could cry for somebody else yeah and and their situation was like disproportionately like normally i don't find the plight of characters in movies quite as devastating as that and so I was sort of like why is this so oh this is why it's upsetting I'm not crying Mm -hmm. for her I'm crying for me because I can't cry for me yeah I'm crying for her wow with the with the kind of force that I would be using or actually much less but Mm -hmm. in with enough like this is a small enough situation and a contained enough situation that I can feel sad about that situation yeah rather than the actual one that's going on yeah I know what you're saying yeah. So, uh, how long ago did your grandmother die? A year. A year, oh. two weeks ago. Oh. Yeah. But see, this is where the difference, I think, kicks in as well. My grandmother was 93 and she had an amazing life. Mm. And she's left behind a great legacy with all her children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and great-greats. And, you know, so I, I guess, in a sense... Although I'm I'm really sad not to have her here, I feel like she had a really wonderful life and that's important. And I think that suffering in general, I can't think of anything worse really. So it's totally different when somebody is ill and ill for a long time. Mm-hmm. And to me that is 10 times worse. Yeah, there's layers and layers and layers of different kinds of huh, privilege. Um, or difficulty in death, I think. I, I always have felt quite lucky with my mum in many ways and sort of horrifyingly unfair in other ways, that it was horrifyingly unfair in other ways, but, you know, that, that we loved her and that she had this very loving family uh, versus the amount that she suffered versus the fact that, you know, we always knew that she was sick so we treated one another very well as a family mm-hmm. and I had no regrets. And I know people whose parents died when they were in the middle of a fight with their parents or oh, when they were, you know, that's that's much worse yeah. in my mind in, in, in many ways. That's a much more difficult kind of death. Mm-hmm from one angle, even if they died painlessly and suddenly, you know, and they were in the middle of some sort of ongoing, like, oh, I I hadn't talked to my dad for a year. Yeah. (laughs) Like, 
God, you don't want that. I guess for the living, because you keep going and, and that's what you have to kind of play back to is that's how things were left. Mm. It wasn't amicable. It wasn't, there was no closure. And I think as human beings, we all love closure, you know? So, yeah, that would be terrible. Yeah. So, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is, which I think is probably what this podcast is about. Not knowing what the answer is, <laughs> opening questions with no answer. Yeah. Um, we are at the Edinburgh Fringe and we're about to head off and do various Edinburgh fringy things. Uh, where can people find you online if they want to follow up on this discussion or see you do your jazz singing? Uh, they can find me under Alana Zivanovic. So that's A L A N A Z I V A N O V I C dot com. And that's my solo singing site and then I'm also part of a trio called the Jazz Box Bandits and you can find us at thejazzboxbandits.com okay look look up Alana uh thank you so much for coming on the podcast thank you for having me this has been lovely we were drinking green tea if you wanted to know just Twining's bag green tea it's Uh, very good it's actually surprisingly good for a bag tea and Mm -hmm. I'm a tea snob (laughs) Uh, you're having tea with Alice